welcome to Transforming Urban, a conversation about Chicago's urban retail development. Join commercial real estate specialist, author, and cultural historian, Lauren Lowry, for a weekly webcast and podcast highlighting Chicago's urban retail corridors. We illuminate Chicago's past to inform its future. Today's episode of Transforming Urban highlights Miss Alyssa Starks. Alyssa Starks is a pioneer of Chicago Black advertising and a pioneer of Chicago's entertainment and hospitality industry. In this episode of Transforming Urban, we learn how Mrs. Starks' career has led to real estate holdings and commercial real estate development that has transformed urban spaces and how movie theaters lead to a career in real estate. Stay tuned to the end and learn how you can contribute to her real estate investment ventures. Welcome to Transforming Urban, the webcast and podcast that really unpacks the intersection of Chicago politics, Chicago real estate, and Chicago Black history. Today, we have what I consider a leisure and hospitality Chicago pioneer, Miss Alyssa Starks. She's the founder and CEO, Chief Executive Officer of Inner City Entertainment. Alyssa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this. Well, I am so happy that uh, we got connected by Daryl Newell some time ago. And you are a fellow Wildcat, a graduate of Northwestern University uh, and from a master's degree and a, a master's degree and an undergraduate degree from Northwestern. So you just stayed in Evanston, right? Yeah. <laughs> For five years, I went straight through. <laughs> straight through. So talk to me, though, about before Northwestern. So where'd you go? Were you born in Chicago? I was born and raised in Chicago on the South Side in the South Shore neighborhood. I uh, went to Catholic uh, grammar school and high school, St. Philip near I on 72nd Street. And at the time, uh, Aquinas, an all girls high school, was also right next door. So, um, like Northwestern, I didn't go far <laughs> um, to get those two uh, degrees. So, um, I, my parents, my mother was a, is a teacher or was a teacher. I should say she's long since retired. And my dad, who's deceased, um, was a social worker. Oh, wow. And so most people take that uh, sort of Catholic school track and go to Loyola or DePaul. What made you choose Northwestern? Um, I was valedictorian of my high school class. Wow. Um, in my yearbook, many people thought I'd be an accountant because they were impressed with how great I was with numbers. Uh, but I had also had a few uh, poems written by a little book that uh, Eusini Eugene Perkins had published. And I really felt I was more of a creative type, even though I love the numbers. And I, I wanted to use, I wanted to write or at least be what my vision was uh, was really about using my words to change the world. You know, we all think when we're young, we want to help people. And what I really wanted to do, there was no Oprah Winfrey. And the closest thing to what I wanted to be at the time was Barbara Walters. And so I wanted to be in broadcast journalism, but I also wanted to go to the best schools. So Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism was considered the best at the time. And their focus was primarily editorial and print. Um, and I figured I'd make the transition somehow, some way. <laughs> got it. Got it. So that's a great sort of understanding of, you know, really taking the time to understand where you wanted to go to school and, you know, sort of the focus of that, the curriculum of that particular school was a drive towards Northwestern. Um, did you think your, was that your first choice or did you have any other thoughts about leaving Chicago or... How, uh, I never thought about leaving Chicago early on. Um, uh, my mother always used to say, well, I did end up leaving uh, right after I got married. Um, my husband, my husband, had, he was an investment banker. So he had gotten, a, a, I guess you would call it a promotion, but it was really more of a lateral move to move to the LA office for the Bank of Montreal. Um, and 
I wasn't going to let my husband at the time go off to LA by himself. So <laughs> I went with him. So my mother used to say, when I wanted you to go away, you didn't go away. And she was really upset because she felt like I was going and going for good. Um, but uh, I really, I always envisioned myself staying in the Chicago area, um, living in the Chicago area, and in some way ch impacting the communities where I lived. So that was always a part of the mission. Um, but it started out in a very different capacity than it ended up. Well, that is a wonderful story as we transition a little bit into um, your entry into commercial real estate. And most people, you know, I'm, again, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Lauren Lowry. I'm the host of this podcast. And I've been working in urban spaces for the last 30 years, but I'm also a historian and an archivist. And the goal for this podcast is to really understand how regular human beings can transform their communities. And you don't have to be a superstar. You can have a completely different dream and goal, and you can have an impact on our communities. And again, our urban communities and corridors are really important. And the first thing that people see are the commercial corridors. You are a leisure and entertainment sort of specialist, again, I would suggest in that, in that sector of retail. And talk to me about sort of, you know, the formation of your company and why in what, 1997, why in the 1990s? Why would you consider sort of pivoting uh, to that type of work? Well, going back to a little bit about Northwestern, um, I went through four years in the school, Medill School of Journalism in the editorial print arena. And while I was still at Northwestern, you know, in a journalism program, you have a lot of electives. And during my electives, a lot of it I still was taking people couldn't understand I was taking statistic classes. It's like, don't you like to write? <laughs> How are you taking statistics? But I also ended up taking the only advertising course um, that was not part of Medill at the time and fell in love with it. It was during my junior year. And I realized that through advertising, I could not through like an account management position uh, equivalent to a brand management position, I could uh, not only be creative, but I could also be analytical. And that made me just change directions totally. It was like, I'm going into advertising. And Med Medill did have, as part of its master's program, an advertising sequence. So I took that, um, eventually got hired at Burrell. That was a story in itself uh, because they were not used to hiring entry what they considered entry-level people with no experience in actually working at another advertising firm. But I eventually got in and worked my way up the top. But through that experience um, with working with a variety of clients, um, kept thinking I was going to develop a restaurant. I knew I was going to be in the corporate world for some time, but I knew my ultimate goal um, outside of broadcast journalism, whatever journalism was, advertising, was coming back to the neighborhood where I grew up and developing a restaurant. And what Burrell taught me, because eventually, and I won't go into the long story of all my long career at Burrell, but I eventually ended up the vice president of um, vice president account director and working on the McDonald's account. And that account um, really inspired the um, move to oh, I know how to do it now. Learning, you know, meeting Black McDonald's owner operators, you know, learning about, um, you know, the process of acquiring a, a franchise, sometimes owning real estate, not owning real estate, really helped shape what I wanted to do. I still knew at that time that I wanted to, well, at that time I didn't, but, uh, you know, I always wanted to do a restaurant and it wasn't, when I lived in LA for three years, um, we happened to meet a gentleman who uh, was a manager. He managed uh, um, athletes, he managed um, entertainers, and he happened to um, be the business manager for uh, a company that at that time owned the Baldwin Theaters. And the Baldwin Theaters, 
was the first African-American owned um, movie theater that played for, that could play first run movie theaters. The reason being is they fought along with um, uh, an advertising agency in LA fought alongside the justice department, the studios to get gain access to first run films until then. Um, and this was a much earlier than 1997, but until then, probably in the 70s, most of the Black-owned movie theaters were all second run. They didn't get the first release of the film. They came in during the discounted dollar phase, I'll call it. And um, they fought. So while I was in LA, we met these people, um, never thinking I was developing a movie theater. I still thought we were going to be developing a a restaurant in Chicago. And when we came back to Chicago, um, I owned a condo on this in South Shore uh, that we had left. And um, on 71st Street, there was a for sale sign going up. I literally saw the man on the ladder putting the for sale sign on an old single screen movie theater. And the light bulb went off. The um, I realized then after having uh, Bennett Burrell for probably five years then that this was a big opportunity. It's like, we met these people in LA and if I hadn't met them, I would have probably never even thought of movie theaters, but it was like, don't we know these people <laughs> who did this? And uh, the Baldwin was once a old single screen theater that had been converted into three screens and it was doing very well. And I was impressed with the men who were running the facility um, and their commitment to the black community. Um, and what many people may not know about the um, Baldwin Theater, it was a white stucco building that survived the LA riots. Um, it was untouched. Um, they also had their own walk of fame of black um, movie stars on there. It was just, you know, it was like, wow, I could do this. And just then seeing this guy standing on top of this old single screen theater, um, on the ladder putting up a sale sign, I could just see it. Also my experience at Burrell, um, because Burrell Communications Group now it's called, um, targeted, focused primarily on African-American marketing. Um, and so the learning I had, um, working on Procter & Gamble, working on Legs Pantyhose, working on California State Lottery, I had access to a lot of, um, uh, research information, psychographic, you know, consumer behavior data, um, just a lot of things to help shape in my goal of what I always knew I was going to do is develop a business in a Black community. And right. McDonald's was the most relevant to me because you had an owner operator, you had um, uh, owners who were purchasing land, um, who you were developing programs for outside of the national advertising campaigns to engage with the Black community. We were developing programs, um, taking into account all the experiences. And one of the projects that I was asked to work on by McDonald's had to do with um, researching, because a lot of these Black McDonald's owner operators came around in the, 70, in the 70s um, and inquiring, uh, you know, and of course you'll hear a lot from Black owner operators that a lot of times they were putting those black owner operators in black communities. So the challenges those black communities faced when it came upon in the nineties, um, you know, th those were the times when we were addressing that, you know, the LA riots, there was an article too, that it appeared in, I can't remember if it was the times, uh, uh, magazine, um, or what magazine it was, but during the LA riots, it referenced the fact that the Baldwin Theater was a black bi business that was not touched during the LA riot, or I shouldn't say a black business, but in the black community, Baldwin was a business that was not touched during the LA riots. And they also referenced a McDonald's owner operator. And part of the story was that it was the relationship that the Baldwin had. It was the relationship that the owner operators had in the black community um, that made people say, no, you don't touch that. And, and today what I understand having gone through the recent um, looting that's happened in many communities, black communities across the country is that these efforts aren't as haphazard as the news 
um, media would let you think that just people are going crazy and that a lot of this isn't intentional. They miss the fact that people are upset because when they walk down the streets, you know, they see a lot of vacant lots, they see boarded up buildings, and they see people owning businesses in their community who do, don't come back and support those communities. So a lot of the efforts were very intentional. And, um, um, and so that was, that only spurred me more. If you knew my background, my dad was, in addition to being so, a socialist, he was a Pan-Africanist in the very way. So my mom, we grew up understanding uh, my sister and I, that whatever we did, they weren't, they didn't force it on it, but it was the way they lived, the, the things they exposed us to that allowed us to say, we're coming back to the community and we're going to be a part of the solution. So Northwestern was just a, let's get the knowledge, <laughs> a part of getting the knowledge to bring back into our communities and be a part of the solution. So um, real estate. So of course, McDonald's, the experience learning about McDonald's um, allowed me to think about the strategy of how we were going to develop movie theaters in the community. Um, the guy that we met that was the business manager for the Baldwin Theater, he had a nasty taste about franchises in his head. And he had once, and the reason we learned later that uh, he had owned a group of ga gasoline stations. And they were one of a few minorities who did own gasoline stations with this chain and they all ended up um you know I guess you would say suing <laughs> the company um, um and because they didn't own the property they didn't own and so you know you're you're gonna get eaten hard up by on the property side you're gonna get eaten up by the supply side, just every which way. And I watched some of that and you hear some of that in the press today about from McDonald's owner operators. Um, uh, that's hard because the company is always, you know, trying to get more money out of its franchisees. And that's just how the system is built. So I was very clear through my learnings of, uh, learnings of meeting people and my experience on McDonald's that part of the strategy of redeveloping our communities was also ownership, land ownership. So it was an important part of um, what we hear. And even today, um, as I work closely with people along the 71st Street Corridor in South Shore, um, that's a resonating theme that we want people who live in the community to own the properties that are in here. And um, uh, and that's a goal of the community, goal of the aldermen, goal of, you know, a lot of the nonprofits, local nonprofits that are here, is we can no longer have in our communities um, land, buildings that are operated with people who don't live here. And uh, <laughs> because it doesn't benefit us. When they decide they want to just sit on some property, they can just sit on some property, it'll be vacant, and that's okay. When they decide that they don't want to lease it to us, to our store, you know, the stores we want to develop, that's a problem. So um, a top priority for the community and always for me has been land ownership. Um, and in some models, traditionally, that wasn't the case. As an example, in movie theaters, many of the large circuits do not own most of their properties. They are leasing inside, you know, shopping centers uh, or big malls. Uh, it is not a part of the traditional structure, um, even though some circuits do have a disproportionate portion of properties that they own. Um, even with restaurants, a lot of most restaurants, that is not really a part of the strategy because you don't know if you're going to survive. You know, uh, the, the thought behind this is you're lucky if you survive beyond five years. But again, I always try, you know, I didn't care <laughs> what their models were, because again, I'm thinking about the communities that I'm trying to serve. So I focused in on land ownership. Wow. You have touched on so many relevant points as it pertains to commercial real estate and development even today. So when you talk about McDonald's, learning and understanding how these franchisees are purchasing land, what's important to them the dynamic structure financially to do that, build, operate, the time it takes to open, uh, that kind of thing. 
I remember, I think a guy named Maurice King, when I started working in um, real estate, uh, one of my first International Council of Shopping Center meetings, everyone was enamored with McDonald's because they were buying land. You wanted them in your center in some way. You wanted to drive through in there. So if we could get to Maurice King, the black guy who was driving the real estate at McDonald's, I wonder where he is. I, you know, I haven't remembered his name in 20 years, but that was a very big deal. And then you touched on something that's really critical. I'm going to have you expand on this a little bit more. When you talk about with, with something that is so critically important is Black ownership of land, and certainly in the commercial corridors that um, we can then use to empower our community members and empower small businesses and large businesses and Black-owned whatever ideas, you can ideate on sort of Black things that we can realize at a certain point. It's so important that we're owning those those parcels and making sure that the public knows that this is black owned because sometimes now people are getting little people are a little cagey there are a lot of black owned little strip centers in chicago but some people don't even realize that it, they are black owned um maybe oftentimes i always wonder whether or not we developed some of those because you know 87th and cottage grove on the short term the larger center is not black owned but maybe one building is now and then you think about 87th and Dan Ryan. Maybe they were developed back in the day or it was ideated to be developed by Black people, but it is certainly not owned by people of African descent today. And so there's a lot of people making a lot of money on land in Black neighborhoods. And then the riots, again, if people know that it is Black owned, maybe we won't touch it. The McDonald's wasn't touched. The movie theater wasn't touched when the Rodney King riots happened. How could that have played differently in our communities if we recognize that that strip center where the Walgreens is and where the whatever is, if they thought that there were people of African descent who owned those things and took care of them and cared about whether or not people got their medicines from there and their groceries from there, would we have reacted differently during the so. Yeah, I think, I, think I, so. I, I really do think that it's a little bit more consciousness than people realize, even from people who aren't as educated or um, or people who are out here wealthy who know that um, they know they a lot they know more than people think they know and they know that they're um, a lot of it is how they're treated by people who aren't <laughs> like them who own those properties um, and there I learned a lot um, like I said going back to the McDonald's uh, with the riots in LA during the Rodney King incident um, at Burrell, working on those campaigns for those local market advertising and understanding that this was an operator who was using some of the things I was developing, how to be engaged in your community. So people know who you are. They know who the local uh, McDonald's owner is of those stores. If they're, doing their, if they're doing the right thing, people know. Sometimes there may be owners who don't want people to know who they are. But if you're letting people know who you are, and you're investing back into the community, they know. Uh, as an example, talking about the theaters um, that we built in 1997, um, there was never any uh, damage, you know, anything done, no rocks thrown at the theater, no anything done throughout that whole entire time, almost 20 years of operating multiplex movie theaters because people knew we were, they knew who we were. <laughs> uh, personally, they could walk into the theater and see us. Um, they could see the types of programming that we were bringing in addition to first run movies. They could see and feel the community days that we did uh, for the communities. There was no mistaking that it was there. The only mistake is that they thought some case, some people thought it was owned by Magic Johnson <laughs> versus <laughs> Don, Donzel and Elisa Starks. But um, it was intentional. Um, um, and I think that for me, I always thank God for um, steering me because I, I think about how fortunate I was to be able to, um, he put me in the path to be able to get all these experiences um, because I had a set thing that I thought I was going to do right off the bat, right? 
and I was going to be in broadcast journalism, but, uh, you know, I would say the Lord has figured out that you would be most impactful in back inside the community, not on the camera, not on the screen, but you need to be in the community and, uh, and just the experiences I had that put me into place. Who knew I was going to LA for three years? Who knew I'd be traveling with the owners of the Baldwin Theater? Who knew I would be eventually on the uh, Burrell account and working on McDonald's? I tried to stay away from the McDonald's account because it was like a revolving <laughs> door until I got on it. So when I think about every experience, I said, wow, because this was not the game plan, even though the mission uh, was always the same. But coming back to the communities, to doing good in the community. Um, and I just feel, you know, that I'm able in this role to help so many people who are thinking about getting into business, thinking about real estate development. And so those are the things that I do challenge people who come to me and say, well, you know, I, I just need to talk to you about my business. I need to talk to you about my business idea. And I usually give most people an hour of my time. Um, and I leave them with things to think about, you know, as it relates to how they're developing their business, which a lot has to do with real estate. Why did you choose that location? Are, are you locked into that location? You know, right. I want you to think about it a little bit more and do some more research on that location. Why that business? Why do you think you can just sell a million widg widgets? What, based on what? Um, and I feel blessed to have been grounded in um, the training of advertising and marketing because it makes you support anything you do. You know, we have to do that to our clients, support it with research, everything. Um, so I feel blessed about the path that I took. Well, it sounds magnificent. You had a great grounding with your parents and understanding, uh, you know, Black communities and recognizing that you want to empower those communities. And you can do that in many different ways. And you've done that both on the advertising side and now you've done that in a very physical way with your movie theaters. And you always thought you wanted to have a restaurant and all of these things are grounded in commercial real estate. And this goal is really to use the lessons and experiences that you have to assist us in the future with how we move forward, you know, sort of in our real estate practices. So, yeah, and, another, and the one thing I wanted to add about that is um, no matter what the field that we go to, I think people a lot of times when they want to start a business, they keep saying, they keep wanting to hoard things like somebody's going to steal it. Most ideas are already exist and you're not replicating, you're either, um, like movie theaters has existed for a long time, but it is how I, you know, what I'm choosing to do in the movie theater industry that's uniquely different and how I approach the industry and make it more relevant to my consumer who is a targeted uh, predominantly African-American uh, market. And, and, and uh, too many people don't want to talk about the, the nuts and bolts of what they're trying to do. And I encourage people to talk to as many people as they can, because you're gonna need all of those resources um, to get some of these things done. It takes a lot of money you know, to do what I'm doing now. Um, this project isn't as big as the original one. That was a $40 million project with the three ice theaters. This is probably more of a $20 million project, but even though it should be easier today, it's just as hard. Um, uh, for minorities to be able to come out and do anything, any open a head shop, you know? <laughs> exactly. You know, before I get to what you're doing on 71st and Stony Island in Chicago, Illinois, in Chicago South Shore community, a grounded community, I want to talk to you a little bit about one of the first, your first movie theater. I know you're working maybe on three at the same time in sort of inner city sort of, uh, you know, communities in Chicago. But who was your team? Were there Black people on your team? You know, how did you decide this is the location? Who introduced you to those locations in North Lawndale and Chatham, et cetera? Who were the Black professionals on your team? Could you have gotten that whole, the, all those deals done with all Black people? Who were the Black professionals helping you? Um, one key, I would say in terms of the land, we did our homework. 
we knew that the Chatham community was a home run for multiplex movie theaters. On the outside, sometimes people think that, oh, because we closed the theaters or uh, sold the theaters that they weren't profitable. It, that is far from the truth. Um, but we chose Chatham because it, it had all the bells and whistles. Um, and a lot of times people don't look inside the black community, but another important thing to know about inside, we are a very concentrated population oftentimes in most markets across the country. So while, you know, you'll have general market um, or national brands that disregard our communities based on income and things like that, they miss the fact that it's not about our income, well, one, because we are consumers, <laughs> very avid consumers. But the second part is because we're so highly concentrated. So what you don't get in someone who totally can't afford to go to the music, you, you make up in the numbers, just the sheer numbers of people. And um, they miss it. They miss it every time. And um, it's why Home Depot is so successful at 87th and the Dan Ryan. They took a chance based on the numbers. And that's one of their largest grossing stores. People sometimes get irritated because they feel like the store is disorganized in comparison to other Home Depots. But it's because so many people are going through these stores. Um, right. and, and they've got to change inventory so much faster than so many. And so it is very clear if you do your homework, um, the amount of people that you can touch and reach for any business is so much greater in our communities if you do things right. So Chatham was chosen as the site. And as we were developing the site, um, and Home Depot actually went and bought the land, all of the land that um, we were <laughs> looking at because it was all available at the time. And um, my husband was sitting uh, uh, in a meeting with, uh, at the, um, Chatham Business Association. There was Garth. Uh, there, I, we both forgot the the uh, Taylor Wright was there, uh, the owner. Um, there was my um, my mother had remarried to Booker Davis Imperial Carpet. That's how he got my husband down. At the husband at the time was was even in the meeting in the room when Home Depot presented its plan to develop its store at 87th and the Dan Ryan. Joe, um, Caldwell, Joe Caldwell, Mr. Caldwell. Caldwell, yes, yes. And I know <laughs> his son very well because his son had married um, a woman since passed at Aquinas. So, yeah. Oh, interesting. Vernon, so which, it's, which it was Vernon? Yes. And so yeah, it was, um, um, so it was, uh, it was, it, so my husband at the time, because we had, initially had planned to, we were part, partners in a deal to buy the Baldwin that failed. Then we went off to Atlanta and they were all excited. The project was supposed to be up and running before the Olymp Olympics in Atlanta. And just as that was, the, the city was fighting over who would be the developer of the site, um, Home Depot announces that it's, you know, gonna, wants to, that it actually, it had actually purchased the property. Um, and so my, <laughs> uh, husband, uh, Don thought, wow, we just missed our opportunity. Somebody's bought the land. But he, when he explained to me what happened in the meeting, I said, no, this is the best thing that could have happened to us. <laughs> the, you had Garth and those guys, the old guard, who, you know, you have to give them credit because they said, Home Depot, we want your, for, you know, we want your first door in an African-American community to be here. And uh, but we've got some issues. You are, you've bought all 21 acres or whatever it was of, of, the, of the property, the vacant land, but you only plan to use half of it. And so we, we have two questions. What do you plan to do with the other half? And what is your minority plan? We need, you know, because one of the uh, existing uh, stores uh, hardware stores was black owned and they knew that a Home Depot coming to the area would just kill it. So what's the plan? So it was fantastic because that meant our next meeting was with Home Depot and to go to Home Depot and say, we can solve your problem. We're black. 
We're developing multiplex community theaters. We need all the extra land. And so they, and so you can get started tomorrow. So let's, let's agree on a price. And so we had a term sheet and the rest was history. And then once the industry, the movie industry found out that there was this husband and wife couple that wanted to develop movie theaters in Chicago, I guess they looked at, then they began to take a deep dive into the site and realize, oh my God, it's a great site. It has all the bells and whistles. And they, they went to Home Depot trying to outbid us. But the wow. issue is Home Depot was locked into a contract. They said, I would love to take your extra money. But <laughs> they haven't defaulted on a contract yet. Right. And Cineplex Odeon, instead of going against us, called us to a meeting to Toronto. We said, here it is. It's about to happen. And ultimately, after our meeting, they realized what we wanted to do, how far we had come in the plans and the development of the theater, and said, we want to partner. Um, we learned from them that the city of Chicago, at that time, Mayor Daly, had been seeking, uh, Cineplex Odeon had the leading share of screens in the Chicagoland area. So the city, understandably, had targeted them because they were looking for a, an employer who could provide entry-level jobs in Chicago Lawn and Lawndale. And that's how those two sites came. And Cineplex only said, we can't do it without Chatham. You know, you pick the home run site. <laughs> that makes, it all makes sense. And so that's how it happened from a land standpoint. So our relationship was such that ICE owned all of the land. On, we, we built the buildings and all of that. But uh, we had initially Cineplex Odeon uh, operate the movie theaters. So that's where we are. Got it. And so your team back then, again, so that's, again, that's a, a yes. big Yes, so the team was really not this high-powered team in the sense that you had Don, you know, more, and you had myself. Um, there were other people that were involved through the way, but nope, they weren't experienced in movie theaters, uh, in operating movie theaters. It was, they shared the vision and wanted to help. I would say the biggest person that people would recognize that helped us was Tom Burrell at Burrell Communications Group. He, uh, I knew at a certain point when we would start to go to talk to banks, that somebody would pick up the phone and say, who this little, who this Elisa Starks? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I went to Tom and um, a lot of people don't know this about Tom, but he has launched a number of business, helped launch, not personally launched, but helped launch other businesses um, that were started by people who worked at Burrell. Some were advertising related like production, and, um, but others were totally different. And for us, he allowed us to meet with his board and to present his, um, uh, present his um, our business plan to the board. And he also um, gave us resources in uh, connecting us with people in real estate and other things. So I give all credit to Tom Burrell um, wow. for any relationships. Some of the, those were clearly um, on the board were black and white, but on the um, in terms of the real estate, those were not African-Americans. I mean, a lot of it was just literally done by um, us having experience in the advertising that it, me being able to know how, how to put together a plan, how to, how to research this. I had access to information that made it possible to understand the opportunity, the scope of the opportunity that was in front of us. Got it. And everybody's not gonna have that, but you can find the research. Uh, if I hadn't worked at Burrell, you know, I've, I've, and I haven't worked there in whew, how many years now? Um, 30 years. So, uh, but the research is out here. There's information you can buy or not buy to help people formulate a, a plan. And we didn't have a feasibility study. Um, we were just lucky. I mean, again, I, I, I say God, only God could have made that happen. The story of how this all came about, because 
they just picked up the phone. Cineplex Odeon picked up. And at the time we had been meeting with, um, uh, cause we were planning on Atlanta. We had been meeting with banks and the only objection people had, they saw our business plan. We just, the strategy we used was take the business plan, put it in the right people's hands and say, just take a look at, it. let it, you know, call us before we even put, try to do a loan. Just tell us what you think about it. And right. at the time before the Home Depot meeting, the things that banks said, we, tr we believe you. One, because Magic had got his first theater up. Magic Johnson had got his first theater up in Crenshaw. So the numbers, you know, they knew it was successful. And um, second, um, th their only objection was that we had never done it before. That the inf we had any, any question that they had, we were able to bring film buyers in to explain to them, I don't need a big, I didn't need a big big chain to partner with us because they're independent um, um, uh, movie theater buyers, you would call them, you would call them uh, film buyers. But um, so every issue, well, what about security? We had the articles, you know, that were written that talked about, you know, that would get them comfortable. And my McDonald's experience, you know, I learned from McDonald's experience, what do you have to do in the black community? You need lots of lighting. Light, right. lighting and all these other things so they understood it the only objection that they had was that we had never done it before so when we got the call from cineplex oh we we were like man this ain't nothing all we got to do is sell ourselves and we walked out of that meeting i don't think they thought we would pull it off because we took the responsibility of getting the financing we took the re responsibility of uh, the next steps, I think they thought we were going to renege. The issue was we knew what the bank said. The only thing is you haven't done it before. We were coming now with Cineplex Odeon that had been in business for 35 years. So they didn't know, they had no clue. They were sweating bullets when they found out we, we were setting up meetings so fast and that the banks were like, well, we know the Starks, we know their capabilities. Tell us about you, Cineplex. Okay. <laughs> so that was that. That's basically the story in in very briefly. Well, those are that's a great story. I mean, when I if I sort of relay what I heard, even with not a lot of experience, but understanding that you had data, understand that you had examples from other sectors of real estate, how to build, how to operate, how to make better any entity that would be in urban corridors uh, to impact black people. So you knew how to do that and you can sell yourself because now right. you're in public relations, you're in advertising, you know how to sell yourself, right. you know how to put together a coalition of people even outside of real estate or the industry like Mr. Burrell to support what you're doing and to create that team that right. says you can go out and be successful. So those are great. That's great inspiration for young developers because not everyone's yeah. going to have the backup that everybody, our goal is to make sure that every young developer now has the experiences, knows the attorneys that know what they're doing, knows the the um, contractors that know what they're doing. You know, again, making sure you've got fantastic representation across the board from real estate to legal, to environmental, to construction, all those things, we're hoping that we can synergize so people at least have some background information. But you were successful even without all of that. You got it done and, you know, you made a well, multi- Well, sometimes we need strategic partners. What we yeah. did is we identified a strategic partner and re really they came to us not knowing <laughs> mm -hmm. that we had all this other stuff with us and the support of the city, the support of the, you know, a lot of other things that just bells and whistles. Um, we just weren't pie in the sky dreaming without yeah. anything behind us. So it made for a great partnership. It was different than the magic Sony partnership. You know, we knew we wanted to come in. We wanted to uh, own the property um, and eventually take over the operations. Um, and which we ultimately did. So now we've got the experience. So it wasn't necessarily all um, as you were looking for before, who were the black people? The black people were people who were out there doing their own things, 
that had the ability to give us advice, give us resources that we didn't have. And um, they weren't necessarily going to be tied to the business, um, but then having a strategic partner. And sometimes, a lot of times, we often look away from that. In fact, we didn't want a partner. That, in fact, we worked hard not to have a partner. And our struggle was um, that banks were looking at this and we wanted Black banks, you know, to be a part of this. And it was like, what is going on here? You know, but uh, ultimately having the strategic partner who had done it before, who was willing to share in the, you know, the benefits of the, these sites and do more was important. So sometimes you have to partner with people and uh, that's what, you know. A lot of the, the black developers now and all of their projects, mixed use, retail, residential, they're all sort of partnering with folks. And sometimes they're partnerships that are majority people of color. And sometimes, you know, you're dealing with European partners and, you know, however you can get the deal done, get the experience, and then you can take that and move it to the next level. Exactly. So, Everywhere in the world, I'm going to sort of pivot a little bit to um, sort of get, getting things done and then having some setbacks. So winning normally comes with a price. And certainly winning while Black is oftentimes uh, even uh, treacherous sometimes to use a, you know, use a word like could be daunting. How, what did you find? Because I know you got some press for opening these, these centers. People are happy about it. The community is kind of happy about it at one point. And then, then sometimes things take a turn within a, a small amount of time. Yes. You know, how, what, did you, what should a young developer be prepared for while they're winning and while they're getting press and while they're sort of getting things done? What, is some, what are sometimes the implications of, of winning and, and, you know, sort of what people think you're being, being successful in what you're doing? Um. I don't know if it's implications of winning, but you know, you're going to have setbacks no matter what in your business. Um, sometimes you can grow too fast. Sometimes you can't, you know, you're not growing fast enough. Um, uh, there's no market. You know, there are times that there are failures. Fortunately for us, those failures had nothing to do with the business concept, the idea itself. Um, our setbacks had to do with the fact that we had partnered with a company that was on the brink of either merging, had to merge, um, their credit wasn't the greatest. So that made their appetite for wanting to do this deal better, but for all the wrong reasons. And so when Cineplex, a year after we developed the theaters, Cineplex Odeon um, had merged with Sony Lowe's and that sent our relationship into a tizzy. And then years later, Sony Lowe's, because of how we were structured, filed for bankruptcy protection. And one of the interesting clauses, uh, even though the theaters were, all of our theaters were doing fine, um, they were on, on our financial documents triggered a, uh, a technical default, not a, not a financial. We were paying, <laughs> paying off the loan, just mo mo moseying along very fine. But it was a technical default. Well, I'm not a banker, uh, you know, and it was a clock. No one ever thought that we would be in partner with someone that would go ahead. And then theaters hadn't done it before that year. But that year, mm. most of the major companies had filed for protection under bankruptcy and um, to restructure. And we were caught in that. Um, and we had to do scrambling, scrambling. So the default interest rate shot up it was like oh lord so um and it was a learning lesson so we are scrambling 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 uh to find other equity partners and then again ended up with a partner who was invested in the vision and mm -hmm. they wanted to do something else and that partner equity partner got upset when we decided because we had when we were in trouble, we ended up having to close uh, the Lawndale and the um, uh, Chicago Lawn location. But we were a, there was funds we knew we could get to reopen it. And he got pissed. It was like, these are properties. <laughs> you getting pissed. And he backhandedly tried to take our property away from us at Chatham. 
it was just an interesting thing. And it was a learning lesson of, it, it did put a nasty taste in my mouth about partnerships. It's what people fear about partnerships. Yes. Um, um, but even though still the, the lessons were, it was right in our face. I was totally against all, all of these because they didn't have, you have to listen to what the information is telling you. And if the information says this partner is not vested, you don't do the deal. And when you don't listen, things happen. You know, what is it? Shit happens. And uh, um, so what we learned is our partnerships um, weren't the best. Um, the first one we needed to get off the ground. The second one we should not have ever done ever. Um, and um, that was the learning lesson. And so things happen, but you can regroup. And, um, you know, we're not the only ones who have um, businesses. I don't call them failures. I call them learning lessons because every time I know what not to have in my my uh, contracts with the banks. <laughs> nope, we ain't going with that. Right. Um, <laughs> we ain't going with that. If I default, then you have the right to do that. But not if our partner, you know, you're giving too much credence to them and um, to their role in this relationship. Um, and you should just never partner with somebody who is telling you, um, telling you, well, if this isn't the best use, are you willing to change the use? Well, they're not committed because this is the use. Chatham has remained a movie theater all this time. Right. And it's changed hands. And for different reasons, uh, like Studio Movie Grill did not fail, but it's not about, they just didn't do it right. Instead, they should have gutted the theater and made it into a Studio Movie Grill like their other ones with smaller auditoriums, change where the kitchen was. There are a lot of things that caused their, you know, them to back out of it. And it just got confusing for them. I've watched them. And then you never retain the relationship with the community, even though they're supporting you and the numbers are great. Um, but you kept monkeying them around with changing, are you a dine-in cinema? Are you concessions? They kept going back and forth. So I'm watching it. I'm like, it's a great idea. We brought a, millions of dollars back into the community. We created hundreds and hundreds of jobs. This, this is the right thing to do. It transformed in each, all three communities what was more than 50% vacant in, or 100% vacant in Westside became, there were more, re, more, it was more retail, more commercial development. So I'd do it again in a heartbeat, um, which I plan to do. So <laughs> in other communities. <laughs> and, and I definitely want to pivot to that. But you basically, again, you, you, you are textbook of exactly why I do this podcast. You just talked to me, you, we started off talking about strategic partnerships and you need some of those to move forward, but it's about being clear and understanding your partner and what their vision is and make sure it merges, make sure. And then the other thing you highlighted, and certainly as it pertains to financing, but across the board, understand those terms and conditions on every level. So having the right legal counsel, having the right financier, making sure that you have people on your team who are looking into your best interests on every smallest detail so that you yes. can avoid, you know, sort of these unfortunate, you know, unpartnerings, you know, what you have to detach. Well, I, I would have never, that's why I said the, the first, the first uh, contractual issue, there was no way to even plan for that. I mean, that was like, you never seen a movie theater at that point that had ever filed for bankruptcy, it, you know? So I would have never done that, but there was a way out. And it was make the, the bad decision was a partnership that didn't make sense and looking for other ways and not feeling rushed because we weren't rushed. The banks were not rushing us. Uh, they were not trying to foreclose on us. They were not trying to do any of that. And we were still making money and still moving forward. We just needed a, a better partner. So the big, I do say, yes, you got to look at your contracts. You got to have good lawyers. You got to have lawyers that specialize in certain areas for whatever you're trying to do. So I have lawyers I go to for zoning with the city. I have lawyers I have to do with partnerships. I have lawyers I have for real estate acquisitions. Um, they need to be, um, you know, an expert in the areas around that. And, um, um, and I'm not saying all partnerships are bad. Partnerships are good. Um, 
um, we made a, a critical mistake. It, it was totally, uh, you know, bad to get someone. It was someone who had a high net worth, lots of money, um, but his interests weren't aligned. And and you've got to talk to people long enough to understand that. So that's that's true. How big? How many square feet were your dissenters in Chatham and uh, North Lawndale? How big were they? Uh, Chatham was about 75,000 square feet. Um, Lawndale was the smallest at 50,000 square feet. And uh, uh, Chicago Lawn was 54,000 square feet. Um, so they were big, what I call palaces, because all the auditoriums were fairly large in, in today's scheme of things. Uh, the minimum auditorium in all of the three theaters was 150 seats, and the largest was almost 300 seats, 299. And um, the learning lesson is Chatham uh, could sustain that um, those large size. The other ones, if I did it over again, um, would be smaller. Um, should have been smaller. You would still have one 300. You might not have two 300s. You know, you do a, a mix and you start with auditoriums that were less than 150 seats. But that's, the issue is the industry at the time was not looking at that. You know, dine-in cinemas weren't big and a big deal then. And Cineplex Odeon would not have done anything differently. And um, so, you know, sometimes you need to just trust your gut. Um, and so it was, again, a learning lesson, but it was, um, um, it's, you know, it, it was learning. It was, there were a lot of things that I learned about it that, oh, this is the way the theaters, theater chains have always done it. This is the way they do it. And sometimes you have to do things a little differently because of the marketplace that you're going to. And, um, you know. Gotta understand the market. Gotta understand the market. Yeah, gotta understand the market. Yeah, this, this is so fantastic. So again, so now you're pivoting. Now you have new ideas for 71st Street, the corridor and the community in which you grew up in. What, how, what brought you to purchasing those centers? What is the idea and how is it going? Talk to me about sort of how you came up with that idea and how you acquired these properties. Well, um, <laughs> the idea came from all the learnings of running, you know, developing, owning and operating multiplex movie theaters. That includes the Three Ice Theaters, as well as the Meridian chain that we developed when City Cineplex and uh, Sony merged, we acquired um, theaters that the Justice Department mandated that they divest of in Chicago. So not all of the ones, because there were some <laughs> places that wouldn't allow us, as they didn't want us. They were oh. like, no, you couldn't take over this theater. We'll just close it down before we let you have it. <laughs> Okay, whoa, 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 Lynette. You know you about that a little bit. Now, so, so talk to me about where were these, where, what, what addresses were these other places where the, that community said, no, we don't want you here? What, where were those? Um, the key one was um, 900 North Michigan, uh, 600 North Michigan. Um, and then there was one in Lansing um, that said no. Um, yes, thank you. But if they're not going to be leasing it, uh, we'll figure out something else, but not you. So, uh, wow. and white blood. That's something to think about. That's something we should all talk about sometimes. Again, you know, still, even that could have been 30 years ago. That could have been 10 years ago, but people still discriminate. And yes. clearly, as we've seen through the last year with Asian hate, Black hate continues to, you know, women hate. Everybody's hating on everything. <laughs> but that's something you have to think about and plan yeah. for. You can't operate like those things are gonna not going to happen. And how are you going to address those things going on but so again your 71st street i had some pictures lined up to talk about but of course through the yeah that, the site is at 70 the first uh the site is at 71st and jeffrey and it's the former site of the um uh, originally like shore bank and so i've acquired the three properties that were originally part of shore bank and uh, the plan is to develop a multi multi-entertainment center um, in under 50,000 square feet that really looks, um, that takes advantage of all the learnings of even going back to the marketing at Burrell, but it takes advantage of the actual experience running multiplex movie theaters and um, the understanding that um, I don't have to build this big, big box and the opportunity that exists 
if I do build a big box, that I could do more than just show movies. And I always wanted a restaurant to come along with the movie theaters because in each of the three ice locations, we had enough room for an odd lot for a restaurant and nobody would come. Mm. Uh, nobody would budge. And um, Don would always say, you're going to have to do that restaurant on your own. You know, I was hoping that, you know, uh, Applebee's would come and then I'd open up my restaurant. And I was like, you don't understand how much volume we do. You're not enough. And um, but um, so this concept takes into the fact that um, I'm just going to do the restaurant myself. So the dream of a Creole restaurant uh, is in the concept as well as a seven screen dine-in cinema a boutique bowling center with eight lanes and an event space. All things that, again, having watched and learned about our consumer market, what they do, um, it's, I'm pulling it all together now. It's like the whole marketing kaboom is coming in into play and it's developed to be right size for the community that I plan to serve. And uh, we had a feasibility study done and one of the consultants said, you know, this theater is going to be crowded all the time. I said, I know. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> we want it to be crowded. We want people to be begging to get in here. and they Exactly. Come. <laughs> exactly. And still make it. So, um, so, yes, uh, I look forward to that. And I, um, I did acquire the property over time. I wasn't a, um, you know, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth that I can just pull millions of dollars down. We did go after family and friends for some of the investment. A lot of it um, that's been done is owner, um, owner funds. Um, but we did get some friends and family money in and, um, the city of Chicago has given us a term sheet for a neighborhood opportunity fund grant. Um, but the way I'm trying to finance this is trying to use as much, uh, government support that I can, um, SBA financing, um, local and state resources, trying to avoid that partner um, <laughs> until I can find the right partner. <laughs> there you go. Sometimes you got to layer the financing, public and private, and make the, the dream come true. And then again, you're right. Once If you get to that level, then you can bring on some angel investors and some people who believe in your vision and, and go from there. Well, I am so proud of you and your history and your work, Alyssa. I am really learning so much and I hope so many people learn more uh, from listening to this. How can someone help? Is there anything that people can do to help? Do you have some kind of vehicle? Can people email you or can they find information on the property? What's the best way if folks had ideas to assist in some way? Um, I do have a Facebook page that can look me up that way, but uh, the best way if they really need some information um, is to call and um, uh, my cell phone number is 773-910-0392. And they can email me, astarks3456 at gmail.com. Wow. So we get the, you know, no one gives their phone numbers out anymore. I may have to Oh, I know that. they don't. I, <laughs> but I, I intentionally use one cell phone. I am not the type of person to have multiple phones and you can't talk to me. Um, mm. As I mentioned before, um, I... My goal, my mission and my passion is helping others. So I intentionally, if, you know, and, and I'll tell you if you call in too much, usually people do respect it and um, they have some very specific information. And like I said, it's an hour. And if you can't move past getting something done after that hour, then there's, no, there's nothing we really have to talk about. Well, you know, I try to stay positive and optimistic using history as a tool to move us forward. And so if we learn anything from you is that you're going to keep moving, you're going to keep creating new and impactful ideas for our communities, and that you're going to spread that kind of optimism. So that's the kind of thing that you bring off right away, Alyssa. So the gods are going to continue to bless you to do the best things because your head is in the right place, your spirit is in the right place uh, to make these things happen. So thank you so much for joining the Transform you're welcome. podcast. I'll let you know when this airs, but you can find it on transformingurban.com. Uh, you can get it on Spotify and all of the particular outlets where you can find podcasts. So 
check it out. It'll be fall soon, and that we're going to run this series in the fall. Alyssa, if you need anything, you can always call Lauren Lowry. I'm happy to help, and you will bring whatever resources I can to the table. And uh, I look forward to working with you in the future. Sure enough. Take care. Thank you. All righty. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Have a good rest of the evening. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. That was a wonderful discussion with Alyssa Starks from the Inner City Entertainment Group. She is the founder and CEO. And stay tuned for more from Transforming Urban this fall, uh, every Tuesday at 10 o'clock, I mean, at 12 o'clock a.m. Look for it, listen for it, and spread the word. Have a great night. Finders Plus Real Estate is a proud sponsor of the Vintage House Show. Finders Plus Real Estate is a full-service real estate brokerage specializing in the Chicagoland communities. Please find us at findersplus.com. Thanks for joining Transforming Urban. The show that attempts to honor the past by highlighting our Black pioneers and their transformative work in an effort to inspire today's real estate entrepreneurs and policymakers. Thanks again and join us next week.